Well, I'm, I'm very um, grateful to be here and for the opportunity to um, engage in this interdisciplinary conversation. I'm very humbled to be here and uh, um, hope that I have something useful to add to the discussion. I'm not a geneticist, so I'm dealing primarily with, with the origins of culture, in a sense. So. Um, we all toss this word around, culture, and um, in general it's being used to apply beyond humans um, to learn behaviors that differ among different populations of a species. So um, great apes have culture now, orcas have culture, birds have culture, lots of things that we never imagined would be uh, included in this term have culture. But lots of my anthropological colleagues would reserve the word culture for humans. They're very uncomfortable with extending this to great apes. And they, it involves a much more cerebral version of culture that includes shared beliefs, shared values, and symbols. So it includes, in a sense, their definition and implies language. So one of the things we're looking at is the transition from an an ape version of culture to a human version of culture. And we also have to, as the uh, introducer said, to realize that humans not only are dependent on culture, but we're also shaped by culture. That be our behavior and our morphology have evolved together in a feedback relationship. The fact that we chose to uh, consume tubers when, t when things were bad, we're gonna hear a little bit more about this later, um, created a, uh, set up a selective situation which selected for um, more genes that, uh, could, that help the digestion of starches. Um, and the fact that we kill and process animals that were bigger than we are, at least we did so for 99% of human evolution, um, also shaped other aspects of our morphology to be able to do it better. Our weapons evolved and so did our shoulders. Our stone tools evolved, and so did our wrists to make them better. And we became better communicators with each other, and the speech apparatus and the brain both evolved to facilitate that. So we've come to the point where we can't survive without culture. You leave a human on a desert island and give them no possibility of making anything to help them survive, they wouldn't survive very long. Um, and we have, in order to acquire that culture, we have an extraordinarily long period of dependency relative to the rest of our life cycle. Not just infancy, which many animals have, but a juvenile period, which is normally a very dangerous period for a species. Um, and I would, in, in uh, moving towards the end of human evolution um, and the appearance of our own species, Homo sapiens, um, I would underline three important aspects of our own culture. One is our capacity for technological and economic innovation, our ability to build on past innovations, to ratchet up what, what our forebears have done, to build something new, and to accumulate culture. This is sometimes called cumulative culture. Um, we also have extraordinarily large social groups that, are, that constitute imagined communities because if you think about who your family is. There are people in your family, I'm sure, as there are in mine, who you've never met. There are people who have, are not even alive while you've been alive that you think of as your family. There may even be uh, 
in some cases, members of families who are spiritual beings or who are going to be born in the future. Um, that, and the same goes for communities or nations. All of these things have an imagined, a mental aspect to them, not just a physical on the ground aspect. And these large social groups are essential for faithful, long-term cultural transmission of complex behavior. They also increase survivorship because there are more uh, individuals that you can go to for help if things are bad where you are or in your life. Um, and the third aspect is the world of symbols, which reifies these social groupings and increases the potential for information sharing and also helps survivorship. And there are lots of ways of trying to understand the past. The way I try to understand the past is by the direct evidence that it leaves behind, which, um, as you see, includes at the bottom genetic inheritance, which I think is a direct proxy of what happened in the past. But so are the stones and the bones of the archaeologist, the landforms and sediments, where we find the stones and the bones, and the biotic and chemical environmental proxies that are encapsulated in those sites. So the question is, for me, when does modern human culture begin, and was it a gradual or a rapid transformation? If we look at the end of the Pleistocene, we find that the first Homo sapiens in Europe had many of these, or if not all, of these characteristics. Material and economic innovation, symbolic culture, language, large social networks. They had flutes, they had strange sculptures that looked like half human, half animal. Um, and so they lived in a rich symbolic world. Uh, uh, before 36,000 years ago. Um, Chauvet Cave is another example, and a, a beautiful example of some of this imagery and symbolism that we see. But it's not just in Europe. I have colleagues who think that you had to have cold weather and to grow the uh, symbolic brain to do these things. But we also have uh, finds from Africa. This is a little bit less well-preserved, but you can see that it's got human legs on the right and it's turning into an animal on the left. So we're, we can be sure that this capacity for making these images did not develop in Europe. It came into Europe with the modern humans. Um, and if we go back further into the past, we see that in um, South Africa, Namibia, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Senegal, and uh, the countries of North Africa as well, we find these, this kind of rich symbolism that implies fully human language. We have beads, we have geometric designs in two different forms, or three different forms. We have them on bone, I don't have a picture. This is on this little slab of ochre, there are two of these. And then we have a series of geometric designs on ostrich eggshell that look very much like the eggshell in the center that was collected in the Kalahari Desert in the 1960s. Um, they're around the hole that was made to use the eggshell as a canteen. And there are 16 or 17 different motifs that repeat themselves through the collection of the eggshells from Deep Clue. So these may be individual styles or group styles or family styles in some way, but they're very distinctive from each other. And these beads are not just at a couple of sites, but um, this is a, a, a map that we made for a paper on African climate in the and the development of early human, modern human culture. 
Um, you can see that there's this great density of dated sites in South Africa. There's a, um, quite a density in North Africa, but less, and East Africa is being filled in. Um, so there's still a big concentration of, of the record in South Africa. That doesn't mean that that's the place where most of the people lived. It's the place where most of the archaeologists live. Um, but about 10% of these sites have beads. So beads are not a rare phenomenon. They're at uh, lots of the sites. They go back to about 105,000 years ago. So already we're back into um, a, a much earlier time period. We also have between 100 and 60,000 years ago um, point styles that differ as you go around Africa, and this could be argued to be a regional tradition that is shared among a large group of people. Um, and they preferentially use everywhere exotic raw materials, materials they had to go somewhere to get, often 150 to 200 miles away, which implies they're not necessarily going there themselves. There may be some kind of exchange networks going on. But if you think about the problems of exchanging things with people that you never met, um, if you were a chimpanzee, they would kill you as soon as you came over the horizon. So you have to come up with a way of telling them that you are a friend as you walk into their territory to get some of their stone. Um, and we also have sophisticated hunting technology between 100 and 60,000 years ago. Bone harpoons in the lower left for fishing from some sites that we excavated in the Congo. Um, stone points from Blombos Cave in the upper left, which were hafted as spearheads. And then microliths from a number of places. These are from Tanzania. There are a lot of them from South Africa as well that were hafted onto what we are pretty sure were arrowheads. So these people had... Um, at least by 60 and probably much earlier, bows and arrow technology. So that would have allowed them to uh, wipe out the game or the en enemies at a considerable distance uh, rather than having to walk up to something and stab it with a spear, which necessarily is a little dangerous for yourself. Um, we also have burials. Um, I showed this one from Kafsa because there's a better picture of it, but there's another one from South Africa with a, sh a shell pendant that's about 90,000 years old. So these are burials. The distinctive thing about them is that they have grave goods. They were giving these dead people something, some kind of special treatment to um, take with them into another life, to provision them. Sometimes these things are food or beads or ochre to make them look as if they're alive. There's some kind of ceremonial, elaborate symbolism going on in these burials. Um, Eurasia is very different. Neanderthals, 60 to 100,000 years ago, had no personal ornaments. They had very com little comparable artifact diversity to what we see in Africa. They had no engraved geometric designs, and I'm, my colleague Francesco Derrico um, cites some things, but I think he himself would recognize that the objects, the engraved ostrich eggshells with the geometric designs are far more complex than anything we see in the Neanderthal sites, which just could be interpreted as scratches. There's little evidence of large social networks. Most of the stone is coming from local sources, and there are no burials with grave goods. There is a personal ornament, which I show here from Cueva Anton in Spain, dated to 50,000 years ago, when the modern humans are already on the periphery or in Europe. And there are several sites with bone and tooth beads that overlap in age with the ages of the earliest European modern humans. So whether the Neanderthals are actually making these things or whether they're 
develop, developing them in imitation or whether they're so stressed out that they're finally getting with it and inventing symbolism is an open question. But uh, in any case, it's a very late phenomenon. The Neanderthals, as you see on this map, lived in Europe and into Central Asia. And we've recently become aware of another group of archaic humans who apparently lived in East and Southeast Asia, although the only remain we have of them is from a place in Western Siberia. Now, Western Siberia might be a lovely place today in a big interglacial. Um, it was not a great place to live in the height of a glaciation, so it's very unlikely that this is the homeland of the Denisovans, as they've become to be called. Denisova itself has stone tools similar to those of Neanderthals, and it also has a Neanderthal remain. Um, these Mousterian tools are replaced by tools of early modern humans. And again, there are colleagues who think these early modern humans were made by, tools were made by Denisovans. Seems unlikely because they look like Near Eastern tools and Denisovans don't go that far west. But this is more likely the northwest edge of the Denisovan range, not the center. If we go to South China and Southeast Asia between 100,000 and 30,000 years ago, the tools look like the tools of Homo erectus, a much earlier ancestor. They're very simple, old one kinds of artifacts. So Africa before Homo sapiens. So we've already realized that by 100, 110, 130,000 years ago, humans were pretty modern. And the oldest human fossils attributed to Homo sapiens are between 200 and 160. What about before that, the Middle Pleistocene? This is, marks a period of major climate variability, which differs by region within Africa. It's more severe at the top and bottom of Africa and less in the middle. But before Homo sapiens, we now have evidence for hafted weapons, for large quantities of ochre, which was being processed into powder, presumably for painting something, your face, your body, your clothes, whatever. Um, we have long-distance networks of um, where raw material is moving. Um, almost all African fossil brain sizes after 500,000 years ago are 1,200 cubic centimeters or larger. That is, they're in our range. And we used to think they didn't do anything special, but that's because we were looking at the Europeans. Almost, um, and they had Lavalois and blade technologies, which many uh, cognitive and archaeological scientists have argued imply sophisticated sequential action, conceptualization, teaching, and very likely language. It's a very difficult technique to learn, and it involves conceptualizing the final form of a piece on a core that you specially prepare to produce that final form. Um, okay, so there are five places in Africa where these long post Achillean sequences have been uh, explored, and I've worked in two of them, the Middle Awash and Alorgasali. I'm going to talk for three minutes about Alorgasali. Um, this is a site we finished excavating last summer called Alorgasali BOK2. It has five separate horizons of occupation, and it's under a tuff that you can see on the left is dated to 340,000 years ago, more or less. The date is not fixed totally. Might, we might get a surprise, but repeated uh, samples have confirmed it. And every black spot you see on the floor in this picture is a piece of obsidian. There is no obsidian in the Alorgasali Basin. Um, and the obsidian here, this is a scale at the bottom left of uh, 28 or 30 kilometers. Um, the sources from BOK2 come primarily from the south, about um, 30, 40 kilometers away, and from the north, about 60 kilometers away. 
Um, and by the time you get to the north, you're getting uphill into um, better watered kinds of environments. But if we go to a slightly younger site that's still probably older than 300,000, it's a little across a little valley, um, we find obsidian from the Iburu complex, which would have been more than 100 kilometers away on foot. So long distance transport of this material. What are they doing with the material? They're making small and medium-sized points that were hafted. They're making bladelets and little bladelet cores and small end scrapers. Um, and Lavalwa technology is the dominant technology. It's also more than 500,000 years old at both the Lorgasali and Wonderwork Cave in South Africa. Um, how do you maintain a large social network? Um, you use pigment. And we have this and other pieces of um, stone that were used to grind ochre. Um, this is uh, the chart I published in 2000 with Sally McBurdy, and all the red lines show where we've con gone since 2000 in pushing back some of these distinctions of um, behavioral innovations that we noted in that paper. And just to give you a line, here's the Homo sapiens uh, appearance, first appearance datum, and you can see the lines go well back before anything we're going to call Homo sapiens. And just to show you, we also have discontinuous preservation, which could be showing us that we have these things in perhaps small packages that appear and disappear. Perhaps the people go somewhere else for a while and then they come back. But um, we have periods of time when we don't have a lot of evidence and periods when we do. But you can see that the record is not enormous for all of Africa. So in conclusion, I have a, just a few points which I'll uh, read very quickly. Most technological innovations are older in Africa, and they imply at least four to five out-of-Africa events, not just two. And Africa had probably consistently fairly large populations compared to Eurasia because it's a wonderful place, particularly East Africa, to be a terrestrial um, herbivore. And um, as a friend in this audience uh, once pointed out to me, it's wonderful to have two rainy seasons a year because then uh, if one of them fails, you have the second one to hope for. Um, there's the De Neanderthal Denisovan split from our ancestral lineage may be one such event. The onset of accelerated behavioral evolution, innovation, considerably predates the Homo sapiens in Africa and the Neanderthal split. So Neanderthals eventually share pigment use, Lavawa technology, and probably cognitive capacities for language. Um, but later Africans with projectile weapons and large-scale networks would have held a major competitive advantage over Neanderthals and eventually, as we know, wiped up them out. The discontinuous nature of the African record implies small or fluctuating scale groups with potential for extinction, especially in subtropical ends of the continent. And it also uh, argues that ancestral morphs and artifact styles could well have survived and did survive. The, um, the second uh, early, homo, early homo sapiens in Ethiopia is associated with the Acheulean, with Hanexes. And so we have, uh, we also have our, a new archaic human that was described this past year um, from uh, Nigeria that's dated to 11,000 years ago. So again, there are mysteries in Africa, always something new um, from Africa. And I'd just like to thank um, CARTA and the organizers of this conference, um, many of my closer collaborators on uh, several of these projects and the funding organizations. Thank you.